All right, open with me to Micah chapter 5. Now, the church I grew up in, it was pretty common for people to preach a little like I did this morning that wasn't actually the sermon. We called it bootleg preaching. We weren't always licensed. We did it anyway. It doesn't count against the sermon time, all right? So that guy who preached for 10 minutes a minute ago, that didn't cut into my time here. I'm still going to take my 40 minutes. (laughs) Thanks. Micah chapter number five. We are continuing considering the old covenant texts about the coming birth of Jesus. You're going to find these verses, especially a couple of them here in Micah chapter five, very familiar. They were quoted in Matthew chapter number two by the chief priests and the scribes when Herod asked on behalf of the wise men from the east. These wise men came from the east. They found Herod, they said, you know, how do we get there? They they didn't have a GPS. And he went and asked the chief priests and the scribes, what's what's this about? And they actually come back there and they quote to him Micah's prophecy. So that's, often we'll give these chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, give them a hard time as we study the Gospels. But praise the Lord, these guys knew where to go in the Word. So that's a wonderful thing. This text contains great foreknowledge about the person of Christ. Let me give you three headings this morning. He is from everlasting. He shall be great. He will be the peace. So let's read together. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, That is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she with travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be unto the ends of the earth. Now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thanks for time together with it, with the church. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time. May we, your church, be edified as your Holy Spirit illuminates the word to us this morning. And may we go live lives that glorify you as we grow in the word, as we are more and more sanctified, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for a wonderful time in the history of man that we get to live in here. Thank you for the hope of the ages. Thank you that we get to live and say he's, he's already come. Oh, we are so blessed. And we praise you and we worship you this morning. With these thoughts, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse number two gives us this idea that this one who shall be their peace is from everlasting. But thou, Bethlehem, and I don't do a great job pronouncing Ephrata. I feel like probably if I had a little more Hebrew in my tongue that we could say that better. So I often skip it. I'll explain to you later why it's not important that you always say it. But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall he come forth unto me, 
that is to be ruler, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, back in verse number one, we read about a siege. The striking of Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. He says, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. So a public humiliation would come, which would cause some of God's people to begin to ask, well, will this continue forever? When will this end? Are God's people always to be humiliated? Well, Micah is given prophecy from God to be able to reply to God's people. This will not be the case. This will not always continue. This is temporary. There's one coming from everlasting and and he will be your peace. There will be a time of permanent triumph. There will be a time of his greatness. The ruler prophesied for Israel. He will come. And Micah says here specifics. He will be born in Bethlehem. He gives us three actual things here. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be ruler of Israel. And he will have eternal origins. Now, an eternal king being born is unique. An eternal king being born in Bethlehem is, I'll call it, utterly unique. We, we think of Bethlehem as this great place. I grew up in northeast Georgia. And in northeast Georgia, just east of Atlanta... There was a, a fairly small town called Statham, Georgia. It's next to Athens. You might have heard of Athens. That's where the university is. Next to Athens was Statham, Georgia. Statham, Georgia, back then, has changed it all. Now, about the size of White Bluff, Aunt Redonna, is that about right? Not a very big town, but fine place. My uncle lives there. Uh, next to Statham, Georgia, there's a few other little small towns and just nestled off in the middle of there. There's, there's just this, you'd think you're in the middle of the country, there's nowhere, and all of a sudden there's a post office. And this post office at times will be one of the highest used post offices in all of the United States, believe it or not. Now you have your big cities that'll have post offices that'll beat it. New York City, Chicago, these kind of places. But there's this one little post office in this unincorporated little town. And guess what the name of that town is in Georgia? Bethlehem. And people go at Christmas time to mail their Christmas cards because they want it to show up to you from Bethlehem. But really, we, when we think of Bethlehem, we, we think of the, the grandeur of it. But I promise you that the people here did not think of Bethlehem in this way. Bethlehem was known as, well, well, he said it here. Look what he says here. Thou Bethlehem, though thou be little. Now, when they ranked it by little, what he meant was, he says, little among the thousands in Judah. When he talks about among the thousands, they were required, the cities were required to raise up troops. They actually called them clans then, but we're going to have to go to war. The Philistines are coming against us. We're going to have to go to war. So you raise up a clan. A clan would be numbered by the thousand. So you get a thousand guys together, you got a clan. You get 2,000 guys together, you've got two clans. Well, some towns might get a hundred clans, some larger cities. Some couldn't even get a clan. So they'd have to join in with some other city. So when they went to war, they weren't even recognized as one who went to war. And this is what he means here. You, Bethlehem, though you can't even get a thousand men together to go to war, you're little. You're meaningless. You're 
You're politically, you're socially, you're economically, you just, you accomplish nothing for our nation. It was one of those towns we'd say, you know, that one stoplight that always flashes in the middle. They're lucky they still got a post office. Now, as you go through Bethlehem, don't blink or you'll miss it. Yeah, this is Bethlehem. In Joshua chapter number 15, Joshua is allotting towns. You know, they're just coming into the land here and they're, they're kind of laying this thing out. He's allotting towns for the tribe of Judah. He gives a list in chapter 15, verses 20 through 63 of 115 cities. Bethlehem's not on the list. Well, that's unique to us, isn't it? From our perspective, it's like, well, no, no, no. Name three towns in Bethlehem. Je- Jeopardy. Will of Fortune. Name three towns in Israel. What are they? Give me some. Judah's a nation. In Jesus' time. Jerusalem. You're going to say Jerusalem? Bethlehem. What's one more? Nazareth. Galilee. Bethel. One of these places, right? Sorry. If I ask you to participate again, I'll give better instructions. I'm working on asking you to participate less, but I am going to try to keep you awake. But if we're playing Jeopardy this morning, and, and, and we as Americans in 2022 were to name places we know about and heard of, Bethlehem's on the list. But I'm telling you, back then, it, wasn't have been on, it wouldn't have been on the list. It was known in some of these Bible stories. We know about it. Who's another Bible story you can remember? In the Old Testament, let me give you the instructions. In the Old Testament, somebody, something happened in Bethlehem. Who are some people's stories? You already said one that's right, Miss Dodson. David. Yeah, they, God tells Samuel, you're going to anoint a king. Saul, is, he's dead to me, God says. I mean, he really was going to be soon. And you go down to Bethlehem to Jesse's house. That one makes my point for me, actually. I was going to use a different illustration, but that one makes the point better. One of the most insignificant towns to the house of Jesse... And when did they find David? After they went through all of his brothers. So the insignificant town and the insignificant son became the king. And when we talk about (laughs) this Jesus born, whose line is he born from? David's. How else do we know Bethlehem? There's another Bible character. Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. This was Bethlehem. And the neat thing about it is, if you trace Jesus' line through David's line, whose line do you have to go through? Ruth and Boaz's. So this little town, they carried little political or military insignificance. Yet from you, Bethlehem, shall come, and not just a king, an eternal king. An everlasting king. Now, that's got to mean one or two things to you here. For sure, from the human perspective, an everlasting king, in a very limited sense, you would at least think, oh, we're going to be the next great world empire. Any historians in here this morning? How many, about how many world empires have, has the world seen that we have recorded in history? Do you know? Anybody know? I, I think I read this week it was 21. The Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, you know, all of these. And then you probably have some who claim an empire that maybe weren't yet. If you, if you live uh, opposite the side of the world from us, who is the great world empire? 
from their point of view, it'd be Russia or China, right? If you live here in America, what's the biggest uh, piece of land on the, on, the, on the globes here in America? It's the U.S. Woo-hoo. So depending on how, whose history you're reading, especially at our day, you might change your number there. But there's not been, uh, uh, there's not 5,000 great world empires that have been. There's just been the one. So from that perspective, you could say, oh, well, we're, we're going to be, this is just a prophecy that we're going to have a king who reigns for a long time. Or a line of kings who reigns for a long time. And you could even mince that with other prophecies and say, oh yeah, because we, we could find in here where David was told, you'll never lack someone to sit on your throne. The Davidic covenant there. But if you kept tracing world history, you would eventually find, here comes Rome. And that's the end. And though Rome symbolically would always have someone sort of on the throne of David, like Herod, a Herod might sit there for a long time. Rome was still in charge. To them, Caesar was Lord. So that, that wouldn't be a good understanding. If you begin to think of it, though, in the deistic sense, then you would say, okay, he shall come from everlasting. Well, where is that? Is that like the other side of Bon Aqua? Where is from everlasting? That's a unique wording, isn't it? It brings our minds to where our minds should be, that He has no beginning and He has no ending. Pastor Scotty was teaching us this morning about God being transcendent. Was it created? He wasn't brought into. He, didn't, he wasn't thought up. He wasn't discovered one day. He always has been. He always will be. He's an eternal God. So as the prophet says here, He will come from everlasting. This is what he means. God will again be your king. God was originally king. And his people said, well, we want, a, we want a man. We want an earthly king. We want Saul. And there's a lot of reasons humans might prefer that. But when you get to dealing with those reasons, one of the things you find out is it makes our sinful nature easier to accommodate when you have a person kind of like you to actually bring stuff to or to, to gripe about or to complain to or get them to do things you want to do. But when God is your king, what do you have to do? You have to do what he says. And then if you, if you have something to bring to him, are you, I'll tell you, I'll just tell you about me. I'll, I'll gripe and complain to my wife before I'll gripe and complain to the Lord. Amen. When I go to him, my attitude sometimes cha- often changes, always changes. Let's just be honest. I might even intend sometimes to be, I'm going to pray about something I'm really upset about. And I get down on my face before the Lord and I think, I don't know that I want to say those words. And I have a friend in Georgia named Josh. Some of you know Josh. You meet, maybe he'll come here soon and visit with us. But my friend Josh will always remind me, the Lord knows the thoughts and intents of your heart, brother. He says, Shut up, Josh. <laughs> From you, Bethlehem would come an eternal king. It's a great thing we find throughout Scripture. Just because a place or a person holds little significance by worldly standards doesn't mean that this is the case in God's plan. Little Bethlehem, little David, insignificant. Where, do you have any more sons? Well, he's there. We got that one keeping the sheep. Bethlehem was small, but it was this utterly important place. Even in name, we find this to be the case. Bethlehem means house of bread. And then Ephrata means 
bountiful. Well, I've told you I was going to tell you about Ephrata. When you referred to Bethlehem to people who knew where it was, you didn't have to say, you didn't have to include Ephrata. But if it didn't know exactly where you were talking about, in fact, there were other places that were also named Bethlehem, so you had to make sure you were giving them the, the, the right one. Like there's a Paris, France. There's a Paris, Tennessee. Where else is there a Paris? Texas. That's right. Anybody been to all three? I picked Tennessee. I've never been to Paris, France, but I'm going to tell you I picked Paris, Tennessee. It's nice. Got some good Italian food there too. I was all up in the air one day. I was about, how cool is this? They have their own little Eiffel Tower and a pretty good Italian restaurant. And somebody said, you know, Paris is in France. It's French food. Like, oh, yeah. It's all European to me. <laughs> but I would say, historically, Bethlehem lives up to its name. The house of bread. And then when you add on the, the descriptor, the identifier of Ephrata, bountiful, the bountiful house of bread. James Montgomery Boyce comments, Bethlehem was a small town among the many towns of Judah, but with a great history. And yet the history of Bethlehem was to become even greater. For it was out of Bethlehem that he, was, he who was to be a divine and everlasting ruler over Israel would come. Richard Phillips shares with us three lessons from just this text. The first is that God's way of salvation is contrary to the expectations of men. Certainly we find that here. You, Bethlehem, though you're little, you can't even get a clan together to help us make an army. Out of you is going to come an everlasting king. What does that look like in your context? What does that look like in your life? God's way, especially His way of salvation, is often contrary to the expectations of men. Oh, you can't do that. Or I don't know if that's what God wants you to do or whatever it is, but you know and you feel like this is what God has called or asked or wanted of you. And how do you answer that call? You do it by faith. So we read in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, Moses. And these all died having never received the promise. But you and I live in a time where we have the promise. So by faith, we make these steps in our lives. And though we may seem small and though we may seem insignificant. Let the Lord do what he may. The second lesson is that God delights to use unlikely instruments so as to better display his glory. Hmm. So a good example of what, what I mean here is stained glass windows in churches. Often stained glass windows will have the cross in, it, in churches that will recognize the cross. And we are certainly one of those churches. It's not a necessity, but if you get to wondering why do churches do this? Well, it focuses your attention in the right place. A pulpit is another example of that. Why does a preacher preach behind a pulpit? Well, the pulpit was created to hold what? The Bible. Now, we have small Bibles now, and we have electronic Bibles. But back when you, the days of even the movable type printing press, everything was huge. And uh, let's see, Brother Jim, there's Brother Jim. He's got one of these. He's got one of these old pulpit Bibles. You tote that thing around everywhere you go, Brother Jim? Why not? It's huge. It's heavy. Back, back then, he, he was showing me he's got this old Methodist pulpit at his house. And they had that thing chained down to the pulpit, this Bible. And at first I thought, why don't you have to chain it down? But, it, but then you get to thinking about it. Well, if that was how big they were and that was how hard they were to get, not everybody had a copy, that might be something to steal. But 
I'm a, I'm a Baptist preacher. I have a workaround on that. I just take out the chapters I want and leave the chain down cover there for them. Why do we do that though? We're, the idea is not just that it's this holding tool, but we want to hide the man who's giving us the message behind the Scriptures. Why do we want the stained glass window with the cross in it? Because I don't really want you looking at me and thinking about me while I'm talking to you about the Word. Now, if I'm preaching properly, I'm preaching to you the very words of God. Now, all these times where I cut up and I joke and I give you chances of opinion, you can take that or leave it. But when we're reading the Word and when I'm expositing the Word to you, I want your focus to be on the cross. So churches have done these little things over the times for that. Well, this is the same idea that we learn here. God delights to use unlikely instruments to better display His glory. You say, well, I don't know that I'm good enough. I don't know that I'm smart enough. I don't know that I'm talented enough. I don't know that I have enough courage. Man, I'd encourage you to never give that excuse to God. And all through the Old Covenant, we find Moses said, well, I don't talk very well. Well, Aaron, I'll have Aaron speak for you. Gideon was the one who kind of said to the Lord, I don't think I have enough courage. And so God made him do multiple things there to kind of discourage human courage so that he would trust that God would fight for him. You remember all these things? He lessened the size of his group, his army. What weapons did he have on use? What was it? Yeah. <laughs> not a sword, not a machete, not a machine gun. <laughs> Lord, I, <laughs> that was pretty cool. He had <laughs> Can you imagine you say to God, I don't think I have enough courage to do what it is that you've asked me to do, Lord. And maybe in your world, you, you get the equivalent in your world, but it's to go and, and fight for him. And he says, I'll fix your courage. Here's a horn and a lamp. Is that what you said? A pitcher and a lamp? Wait a minute. I'll take that back. Let, let me have my sword. God does an even better thing for him. He says, sneak up there and watch. And he shows him the host of the Lord's army that's going to do the fighting for him. Often God will use unlikely instruments to display His glory better because if He uses the, the notable things... Well, then who gets the glory? The notable things. So don't qualify or quantify yourself for God's service based upon your size or your notoriety or your nobility or your ability or any of these things. Just obey. Start every day with, Lord, what would you have me to do today? And do what he would have you to do that day. Bethlehem was little. But he that would be their peace would come from everlasting through Bethlehem. A third lesson we have here, Micah shows that the true hope of believers lies in God's sovereign grace. If mankind had designed this, the king would have come elsewhere. But God having it happen in Bethlehem was one sure show that He was the one making this plan and working this plan out. He is sovereign. You and I, we, we love His sovereignty when it is regards to His grace because we consider ourselves saved. And we're glad that He has sovereignly saved us from our sins and from His wrath and from eternal damnation in hell. But tomorrow when we get up and it's not church day, we've got our plans, we've got our schedule, we've got our things that we want to do. 
How do we feel then about God's sovereignty? How do we feel then about letting him? He's in charge. No, I'm in charge. Those faults have been, those fights have been fought over the years. And I promise you this much from what I can tell from Scripture. And you can ask Jonah. And you can ask Lazarus. God always wins. Poor old Lazarus. He was just trying to die. He was already buried. That wasn't God's will, evidently. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he, he was already smelly. Don't know that's when deodorant was invented. Bruce Walkey wrote this. He says, the focal point in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. Amen. Aren't you glad that that's the way it is? I'm so glad that we're not here this morning worshiping because some man did something. Because we, we have hope in some man to do something. But because we've decided that God has divinely intervened in the lives of men. And out of nothing, he brought greatness. Amen. Bethlehem, though you're little. Among the thousands. Out of you. From you shall come to me, God says. This was his doings. It was for him. He from everlasting. Jesus Christ was Born into obscurity, not prominence. He was born into poverty, not into wealth. He was born into weakness, not into power. If you had to determine, we're going to bring a king in to be a world king. How can we bring him upon the face of the earth in the most powerful way possible? Guarantee you, the first thing on your list would not be, let's just have him be born. Let's have this young lady and her new husband... Just give birth to him in a relative's house. They're staying in the room off to the side there and them and the animals. And this is where they're going to... An eternal king? An everlasting king? This is not how you'd plan it. There's better ways. In our day, with our methods, we'd say bring in the missiles and the tanks. You see, over in like China and North Korea, the Russians do this at times. Back in the... The, the Hitler area of Germany, you know, they'd, they'd march, you know, and all the pomp and circumstance and the banners and the colors and the, the weapons. And they just kind of show it out there as they begin to go to war to let people know you should be afraid of us. That's the human way. God's way is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let a few of the planets align or however he did it. I'm not sure. We're going to shine this real bright light in the sky over this town called Bethlehem that wasn't even big enough to form one clan for the army. And I'm going to encourage the ruler of the then world, then known world, to, to call a census so that he can have a tax. I know he'll go for it because he's motivated by money. Most men in power are. Paul said in Galatians, and when the fullness of the time had come, how did that happen? God hit the start button. He put these things in motion. Caesar said, this is what I'm going to do because I'm in charge. And the people said, this is what we're going to do because we're in charge. And God said, no, this is what you're going to do because I'm in charge. 
from everlasting. And then verse 3 and 4 tell us he shall be great. We learn from verse 2 that God achieves his works through the hands and lips of humble believers committing, committed to doing his will. But it's not to our glory. It's not for our sake. It's, it's for him. Verse 3 and 4 teach us that he shall be great. Not we shall be great. He shall be great. Now we'll rule and reign with him and we'll be his people, but it'll be about him. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 3 says, therefore will he give them up until the time that she with travaileth hath brought forth, and then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and, she, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. He'll be great in his person. Verse 4 says he shall stand. This is, he will rule. He will reign. He will be the one standing. Others will fall. Verse 2 tells us that he's great in his calling. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. Well, who's in charge of that? That's God. So he's great in his calling. He's great in his ministry. Verse 4 goes on to say he shall stand. And then what will he do? Feed. He will feed his. Like a shepherd, his sheep. This is going back to the other prophecies we looked at already. He will be a, a ruler and a shepherd. He will be a conqueror and a caring one. So he's great in his person, great in his calling, great in his ministry. He will shepherd. And then verse 5 says, he shall be their peace. He's great in his salvation. Yes, Israel would be given up, verse 3 says. Therefore will he give them up. They would suffer a time of purification and judgment. This is chastisement in, in, in the new covenant. If we do not ever face chastisement, we are either sinless or we are what? Not sons. And we are not sinless. So hopefully we are facing chastisement before our sinning, else we are not sons. Israel here is saying they're God's people. They suffer this time of purification and judgment. But here, peace in the end is promised. When does verse 3 say that peace would come? He'll give them up until when? Until the time that she with travaileth hath brought forth. Only until she has given birth. And we know the rest of that story, don't we? And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. There's no room for them in the end. These old covenant prophets said that the eternal king would be virgin born in a town called Bethlehem. At the appointed time, God sovereignly moved upon the then ruler of the earth to have this census and tax, and this led Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. We know this story. We sang about it this morning as we began our worship together. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Yet in thy dark street shineth. What kind of a light? Everlasting. The everlasting light. He will come from everlasting. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's a blessed time on earth for human perspective when hope meets fear. You live in fear, you operate in fear, you wonder, you're not sure, you're, you get anxious, this causes stress. It's one of the things that kills us. 
But when hope meets fear, anxieties go away. Stress goes away. People begin to have hope instead of fear. Phillips Brooks did a great job in pinning that. The hopes and fears of all the years are met. I, I just think of Mr. Hope and Mr. Fear on this dark street of Bethlehem. <laughs> How you doing? My name's Fear. Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Hope. I think I'm here for you. Praise the Lord. Verse 3 says, Then the remnant will return. And then verse 4 takes it even further. Not only the remnant, to the ends of the earth. So in verse 3, He will give them up until the baby's born. Then the remnant of His brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And then verse 4, He that is born will stand and feed. He will rule and shepherd in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great to Israel? Now shall he be great to this area? No, to the ends of the earth. All of this, this great commission, worldwide evangelism through the one whose birth here is promised. From everlasting he shall be great. Verse 5, the man shall be the peace. And this man shall be the peace. When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. He is the peace. He is the prince of peace. Isaiah chapter number 9 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 lays this out for us as New Covenant believers. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. This foretold one would, would come and provide completely for His people. He would bring comfort. He would provide for their well-being and for their security. He would physically bring peace. You would no longer be at war. You would no longer be a conquered people. We now can know spiritually what was known only prophetically then. And then once it wasn't just prophetic, it was fulfilled. Even then they only knew it in the physical sense. But you and I in the spiritual realm now have have this better thing that God has prepared for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Colossians 1. Turn with me to Colossians 1, 12. I'm not preaching tonight, so I'll take another 30 minutes this morning. How about that? Now, i got about, about five more minutes. That's what I tell the kids when we're on trips. Dad, how much longer is it going to be? About five more minutes. When they were little, they'd, like, they'd get excited. Now that they're older, they're like, oh, come on, Dad, how long is it really? Actually, now they say, Dad, will you move over? Why? So I can see the GPS. <laughs> Colossians 1.12, are you there? Let me quickly take you through some things that are... I'd call this a New Testament version of what we're studying in the Old Testament in Micah. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father 
Here's your first phrase. Which hath made us meet. We sing that in a way in a manger. And fit us for heaven to live with thee there. We, we can't go like we are. We can't be with him in our own strength and in our own ways. No, what does he do? He made us meet. He made us able. He put us in a position for what? To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It's a lot of words. They're big words and they're meaningful theological words. But if you could just come to realize that every promise in the book is yours. But in your own strength, you could not experience and partake of these promises. Except that he fits you. He made you meet to be a partaker of this inheritance. Then verse 13 says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. And, and don't miss sight as we go through this, how he did this. How did he deliver us? With pomp and circumstance, with tanks, with, with weapons of war, with great mental leadership? No. And she brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. Now we get that after this he lived and, and he died and he in his dying conquered, but he resurrected. I get all of that, but it started right there with the birth. This is God's way. He delivered us from the power of darkness. Look what else he did. He translated us. If, if, if someone was talking in Spanish this morning and you could only understand English, you would need a translator. Brother Jason can't hear me in English, so Miss Leanna is hearing me in English. She's translating with her hands in American Sign Language what I'm saying, even when I say machine guns, and she says, pow, 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 pow. <laughs> Just wanted to make her do that again. <laughs> Might say that again before we're done. Just heads up. <laughs> She's translating. She's making from one thing to the next. This is what God's done for you, church. You were a part of his kingdom. You were a part of the kingdom of darkness. But he translated you. He took you from something un un understandable. That's a made up word, isn't it? Something we could not understand to something we can comprehend. Translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Verse 14. His son is the one in whom we have redemption. How? Through his blood. What did that mean for us? It meant even the forgiveness of our sins. Who is he? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of every creature. It goes back to transcendent. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him. And don't miss these three words. Who are they for? For Him. Don't lose sight of that. That'll put the Mary in your Christmas. You may not like who's sitting on the throne of certain places in the world right now. It may stress you. It may bug you. But don't you ever forget that He made these thrones, that He set the people up who are on those thrones, and the things that He's doing, whether we like it or not in the moment, He did it for Himself. And all these things work together for who's good? The church is good. Mm. Praise the Lord. Verse 4, 17, He is before all things. By Him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Please give God the preeminence in your life. Please give Christ the preeminence in your Christmas. Please let, let him be what he is. 
He is to have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. I can't even wrap my head around how that's possible. How can all fullness dwell in one thing? If it's just that one thing, then it's not all fullness because there's other things. But God says it to be so. And this just brings us into the, the, the vastness of his incomprehensibility. Do you want a God that you can comprehend everything about him and just wrap it all up and stick it in your pocket and say, all right, I've got that mastered? Or do you want a God with galaxies and stars and planets and unknowable things and unsearchable things? And he says, here's the things that I'm going to let you know. Just trust in these things and everything will be all right. Praise the Lord for this, our God. All fullness dwells in him. Verse 20. And having made peace, there it is. He made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. When you read all of these verses, though they affect us, do you notice how little they speak of us? It's all about him. He did this for himself and you and I just get to benefit from it. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, he made the peace. You can go back to Micah 5. In Micah's day, a physical enemy would come and God would provide those to eventually stand up against them. He says here in Micah chapter 5, verse 5, then shall we raise up against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now, that's interesting to me. It's kind of like Melchizedek interesting. Why shepherds and principal men and why eight and seven? Very unique. Some speculate, well, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. When there's seven other things, that means it's complete. Eight's the number of man. So though man is conquering his people, God through will completely through men take care of this. That's one way to think about it. But putting your whole interpretation in biblical numerology is a, is a pitfall. So I'm not going to give it to you that way. Most of the scholars that we know and trust and read after simply say things along the lines of, in the, pro, in the fulfillment of prophecy spiritually, there would be a sufficient supply of those needed to expand his kingdom. That's a good generic way to take this here this morning. But, but it is unique that Micah talks about shepherds and principal men. I'll give you a little chance Strickland theology then. So, so I've given you uh, maybe some numerology from all the dispensationalists and then I've given you some systematic theology from all of the reform crowd. I'm going to give you some Tennessee theology from the chants. Right? I was at a pretty Calvinistic conference recently and I went to get my name badge and it real boldly said chance right there. Calvinists don't believe in chance. They believe everything's purposed and set forth by God ahead of time. They said, really, is that your name? And I said, yeah, my parents weren't Calvinists. <laughs> oh, they, I tell, I joke and say, we don't let our kids eat lucky charms. They have to eat providential charms. <laughs> so let me give you some chance theology. That's about as deep as it gets. Just setting you up for it here. Shepherds. In the Old Covenant, when shepherds weren't shepherding, they were soldiering, right? We've already established that. And under the New Covenant, shepherds became a word synonymous with what? 
preachers, pastors, the under shepherds. Jesus is the shepherd, and then there are these under shepherds, also angels. So I'm your pastor, so you know, <laughs> that one didn't fly, did it? I'd say what kind of angel? I just said angel. And then principal men. If you look at the Hebrew, and then the, and I'm not great with that, but when you when you get into dealing with it. A good way to do it is like if you wrote down in your paper right now, prince-ly, princely. No, that's not real. And that's not good English grammar. But princes. A prince, a, a son of a king. Does that get, get your head going where it needs to? So old covenant, principal men and shepherds, new covenant, preachers and children of the king. How will he establish his kingdom? Well, in the Old Covenant, he's going to do it through seven shepherds and eight principal men. In the New Covenant, he's going to do it through some preachers and some of God's kids. Isn't that wonderful? And then you get over to Mary and Joseph's story. And every instance of it, you always find shepherds. You always find angels. You always find shepherds. And then there's always these wise men. The wise men were, weren't just wise. What were they? Kings. They were kings from another country. So this will happen when she that is to give birth gives birth. And it will be accomplished through shepherds and wise men. This is Micah's prophecy. Israel would suffer years of judgment. Years of chastening for her sins. Then a savior... A new and greater David would appear. And he would shepherd not only in Israel, but all the nations, giving peace and making his name great throughout the earth. His kingdom would stand against all foes. And this prophecy for us spiritually mirrors the gospel story. Jesus would be born. He would live a sinless life. He would die as a substitute on a cross. He would be buried, but he would resurrect. After his resurrection, he would ascend and we would get word that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. He would eventually return and from then on there would be eternal peace. He shall be their peace. When we die to self, we are allowed to live eternally through him. And only then can he be your peace. Let's stand and pray.